to prepare the way, and at the same time, Lord, prepare our hearts to receive it. Um, God, we ask this morning in a unique way that you, you pull back the curtain of all of history and past, present, and future and, and reveal to us in a new and fresh way this morning the bigger picture that you have in store uh, for us and our lives and, and how we all connect with each other and with you. It's in your name, Jesus Christ, that we pray. Amen. Uh, uh, last week, Thursday, so just a, a few days ago, um, I was at a, uh, at a bakery. Actually, this is going to turn out to be a shameless plug for the men's Bible study on Thursday mornings at 7 at Panera. Thank you, Joe. Is that right? Um, we, uh, we connected, and, uh, and, and we were kind of talking a little bit about kind of the Bible and how we relate to it. And, and one person had a, a, I think, genuinely and refreshingly honest uh, kind of uh, uh, confession or maybe just a- admitting something to say, you know what, it just, it seems like when, when we look at the Bible, it just seems like it would be so much easier if we could not have like the Old and the New Testament all kind of bound together in one book, in, in one volume. I mean, I mean, how much easier would life and following after God and maybe even particularly inviting other people to get to know him better, how much easier would this be if we could just do like the Gideon thing and have just a little New Testament, you know, a few pages, Psalms, Proverbs, why not throw those in there too? And then we could like hand those out. How terrific would it be or how, how easy would it be to every time you invite somebody to, to read the Bible for the first time or for the first time in a long time, how nice would it be to, to know that when they opened it up, they were immediately starting off in the first chapter, in the first verse, right? Starting out their Bible reading with the story of Jesus. How easy, how clear would it be that when somebody does that, they hear about Jesus first? After all, when somebody comes up to you and they say, you know, maybe I want to, you're a Christian, maybe I'm kind of exploring this or looking at maybe my next steps, and they ask you a question. Or whenever they ask me a question, the thing that I responded with was, let me tell you about Jesus. I always start with Jesus. Wouldn't it be easier if the Bible did too? When I talk to people about Jesus for the first time, I don't talk about, well, you know, there's this um, people in the Old Testament that God was kind of carving out and making them uh, new and he was doing things a certain way. And then, and then there was this Old Testament sacrificial system. It all had to do with the temple, but it wasn't really about the temple at all. That was just a way to kind of training wheels get us to this heart thing. And it, no, I don't start off there. So, so why does the Bible start there? I mean, maybe it would just make our job as followers of Jesus so much easier that, that maybe if we started off with a part that, well, you and I would start off talking with, certainly not the Old Testament. Now, of course, I can't advocate for that this morning because I'm like the pastor, right? I mean, I can't be advocating hacking off like 70 or 80% of the entire Bible and saying, let's just start with the easy part, right? No, no. Of course I can't say that, but at the same time, you know, maybe the only option that I have left is, is to introduce a new series on the Old Testament <laughs> to dig in. Um, okay, we're not doing a series about the Old Testament, um, but it's kind of about the Bible as a whole. The series that we're going to start here is called uh, The Big Picture, because the, 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 where that kind of comment comes from, and, and I think why you and, and I know I resonate with that so much, is, is that it seems like at times it would be easier to start off with the Bible with the story of Jesus. It, it seems like there's a lot in the Bible that, that maybe it isn't so clear, that, that maybe it would be so much easier to, you know, if you, if you want to start, you can read about Jesus. If you want to dig in after that, you can go and, and find yourself in Old Testament or something like that. But no, the, 
What I love about this series is that like in the prayer this morning about pulling back the curtain and just to try to understand what the bigger picture is. You see, I think, and the assumption of this series is that there's something that we would miss if we hacked off a large part of the Bible. Is that there's something critical to the bigger picture of history that God is painting for us in the story of the Bible that that we would be sorely lacking if we didn't have some of these critical books. Think for a minute about a couple of uh, famous paintings that maybe you've seen in the past. Uh, Number one, the first one, Vincent van Gogh, right? Not on the screen because I want you just to picture it in your mind and a few of the things that stand out. I'm guessing a couple of things. If you haven't seen it, the uh, Vincent van Gogh Starry Night is this like cityscape, but it's it's bleak and it's dark. And there's something maybe on the left-hand side, it looks like a castle or, you know, a house or something, but but it's it's far too dim. It's shadowy. There's almost no distinguishable feature within the city itself except the sky, right? These like rolling stars in the uh, tradition of the painter. And and it's almost like the contrast between the city and the sky is just so heavy. It makes us so appreciate that the bright colors and the stars that much more. If we were to start kind of like blotting out or, or cutting out pictures of the of the cityscape, of the shadows, of the darkness we'd miss something. Or think, too, even more to the point, the, the painting of Leonardo da Vinci's Last Supper where Jesus is in the middle of a table and, and it's spread out and all the disciples are all on, on his side. And it's almost as if Jesus is looking right at you, like inviting you to the table. And all of the disciples though, aren't looking at you, the, the viewer of the painting. All the disciples are, are looking at him. And each of the disciples has its has a own unique facial expression that they're, that they're wearing and if you want to say, you know, at the heart of the painting, though, of the Last Supper is, is of Jesus. And, and so maybe to focus more on Jesus, we ought to just blot out or to cut out some of the, the disciples so that we can better connect with the center of the painting, Jesus. And of course, that's ridiculous because when we do that, when we cut those parts out, there's something at the core of it that's lost. There's a message here in the, in the painting. There's a connection that, that's severed. The heart of it is is lost, even though Jesus is still there. In the same way, this series, The Big Picture, is about each of these uh, books of the Bible and how they have their own unique way of telling the gospel story. Is that even the books long before Jesus was ever even born into this earth tell the story of Jesus in their own unique way to their own unique time and people. And there's a message in there for us as well. Now, the thing about this series, the big picture, is that it's my hope and it's my prayer that we'll walk away from this series and that you'll be able to open up a few of these pages and say, you know what? When I open up the Bible, I open up the Bible to the story of Jesus. That no matter where I open it, whether it's red letters or black letters, whether it's Old Testament or New Testament, when I start off the Bible and read at page one, I'm reading about the story of Jesus because this gospel message is proclaimed in each page, in each chapter, in each verse. It points to him again in its own unique way, in its own unique time, to its own unique people. Uh, So the Bible has 66 books to it. And because I uh, lack the attention span of doing a series that's going to take us, breaking for Christmas and Easter, into 2017, you're welcome, 
We're just going to drop in and spend uh, the next few weeks, maybe seven weeks or so, going into each of uh, a few of these books. Now, now the ones that we're kind of like handpicking are the ones that maybe we don't always get to that often. Because the aim is to say, listen, if we can find Jesus' message in a book like Obadiah, that seems to be completely lacking in grace whatsoever. If we can find Jesus there, maybe it's going to be easier to find Jesus in Isaiah. If we can find Jesus in these peculiar, kind of dim books of the Bible like Lamentations or Ecclesiastes, maybe it's going to be easier to find Jesus in a book like Exodus or something more well-known like the Psalms. Uh, So, starting off the series, big picture, kind of finding Jesus, the gospel according to, and we're going to start off Genesis. Um, The story starts us off in Genesis, and it starts in chapter 1. And a lot of us, you know, this one, it is a book that's fairly well known. And and a lot of us kind of hear about it from from here and there quite often. It's like, oh, Genesis, that's a creation story, right? I, I heard about that one. I got that one. I mean, Genesis, it's a book that literally translated, it means the beginning. So it's a a great place to start, right? Genesis. Um, but, but more than that, I kind of picked this one because I thought this is a book that, that seems to be, have been hijacked somewhere along the line. So often we look at Genesis and it's like, oh, it's a story of creation, how God created everything. Sometimes you might think of like, you know, who created the universe and everything. And I want to say, absolutely, sure, it is that. But, but more than that, that's Genesis chapter 1. In, in case you've like, taken the time to flip past that, there's 49 other chapters in Genesis. So like, God is doing something in this book that has a lot more to do than simply just making the universe. Although that line kind of sounds funny because you'd think that'd be enough. But no, that's Genesis chapter 1. However, rooted in Genesis chapter 1 is the theme or the pattern, the Jesus pointer already in these first few verses. Now, so often we get caught up on the creation thing, and I just want to table that for just a minute and say, like, let's try to figure out this theme of this book to figure out how it points to Jesus in a way, to, to how it can change our weeks. Because I think it will, because the, the heart of the gospel, the mission of God is embedded here, right here in Genesis chapter 1. And you thought it was about creation. I know it is, but still, there's more. Um, Genesis chapter 1, you know, maybe you remember this. If you were a kid on Sunday school, they make awesome crafts for this because God spoke on these different days, and it really kind of works together awesomely. So Genesis uh, 1 starts off day 1. God creates, although it says it spoke, he spoke into the darkness, and, he, and this is the concept. He, like, separates. He makes distinct um, you want to in, invite a little help up on the stage as we kind of go through this. He starts to tease something out in the text. It, it's like he's, he's carving things away, right? It, it, day one, God starts off and he's, and he's talking about uh, separating the light from the darkness, now, it's a funny way to give a creation account about separating these two things. It's like there's this over here, And then there's this over here. That's day one. And God said, it's good. After that, day number two, God continues to to not simply create and to speak into the nothing, to bring something where there wasn't anything before. But more than that, he he draws this distinction. He separates out. You could even say that, that he carves out within creation something unique. It's like the camera lens kind of focuses on that. On day two, that happens to be separating the, the skies or the heavens, all kind of one word in the Old Testament Hebrew, uh, from, the, uh, from the sea below. So you have sky and you have sea as being two distinct uh, bodies. 
And then day three, God says, speaks into the nothingness again, and he, he separates out, he makes distinct, he carves out for himself. There's dry land, and then there's, there's the, the sea water. So we, we already started this sea thing, I don't know, but this time we're drawing out dry land. On day four, he goes back to what's kind of going on, the light and the darkness, and he, and he goes ahead and he fills the darkness and the, and the light. He says that he, he creates a greater light to govern the day and a lesser light to govern the night. So, so even among light, he's drawing out, he's carving out, he's separating out a greater light, the sun, and the lesser light, the moon. On day five, you can start to get the pattern, right? On day five, he's filling up the, um, the, the, the sky and the sea, and he goes, he's drawing, he's, he's got birds, and, but birds flying through the air are completely separate and distinct and carved out from, from fish swimming through the water below. And then, of course, day six. After all of these days, he's been saying, and, and, and it was good. It's a way of saying, no, I'm, as the creator of the universe, satisfied with what I've made. And then we get to day six. And of course we have land. And we have creatures roaming along the land. But more than that, God separates out. He makes distinct. It's almost as if he carves out of just all of the creatures in the land and of all the animals. He says, but yes, there's one that's unique. Because I made Adam. I made one distinct animal that's different from all the rest. I made a human being. And the rest of the Genesis story follows that human being along. In Genesis um, uh, chapter 2 and 3, we see, yeah, but God didn't just create Adam and Eve. God continued to separate, to make distinct, to carve out its own, you could say like this thin family tree all throughout the book of Genesis. Adam and Eve had, and we get the impression, it's a lot of children. But, but among them, they had Cain and Abel. There's a story there, and we don't hear much from that afterward. But the camera lens, it's almost like the storyteller stays focused on Seth, because God is carving out from the line of, of Adam and Eve, Seth, and it follows him. He's made distinct. He's separated. After Seth comes, all of Seth's grandchildren and great-grandchildren, you have uh, the structure of Genesis is in these 11 formulas that this is the account of, this is the, the, the account of, this is, you could call it a genealogy, something that Panera, 7 o'clock, Thursday mornings on Kalamazoo have. When we get to, in Bible study, it's like, I hope somebody brought something good to say about this, because this is a long line of so-and-so is the father of so-and-so, which is the father of so-and-so. It's tough to get through. But, but here we can see that God is, is like carving out. He's whittling out. He's making distinct one thin family line all through his story of separating out the things and then separating out the people. There's 11 of those toledotes is the Hebrew word, or the formulas. This is a count of in Genesis. It's the basic structure of the book. We get to Noah. God says, I'm going to start over with all of creation. It's a recreation story. Creation would be better off if these people were not around to wreck it and to spoil it and to hurt other people. So I'm starting again with Noah. He's got three sons and their wives, Ham, Shem, and Japheth. We don't hear much from Ham and Japheth later on. The camera stays focused, the storyteller stays focused because God is carving out from Noah's family now Shem. Excuse the kind of history as we go through some of this, but we, we have to understand what God is up to in the book. It's not just a creation story. It's a carving out story. There are pieces, there are scraps that are left behind on the ground that we don't hear from before, much after that. Sometimes we hear more about it, but the stories, they aren't very good. 
after, uh, after Noah and his sons, we finally get around to, this is the account of Terah, Abraham's father. We don't hear a ton about Terah because he kind of messed up and got carved out from his family of all of his sons, Nahor and, uh, and Abraham. We, he carves out Abraham, and, and we say focus on Abraham. He's got a few kids. Uh, Abraham has uh, uh, Ishmael, but we don't hear much about him. It's almost like he's the scrap that falls along to the floor. What, what we hear about even more in this story is, is Isaac, and then Isaac has a couple of kids, and then of Isaac's kids, we don't hear very much about the older one, which you would think so because he's the older, and he's, he's who the story is supposed to be about, but we hear about the deceitful younger one, Jacob, and it stays focused on carving out his line. And after Jacob, we hear he's got 12 kids, 12 kids, and almost the entire second half of the book of Genesis, it's like God is, is whittling out, is carving out, is separating out among Jacob's 12 kids. Just tell me, tell you about Joseph, the youngest of the 12. You start to see what God is up to. Genesis isn't just a story about creation of everything. It's about God carving out, whittling out a thin family line all throughout history. Easy friends. Easy friends to stay focused on what God is doing. Easy friends to see the action in the story. At the same time, too, we have to take a look at the shraps that fall to the ground. We have to pay attention the pieces left over, to the broken ends, to the hurt feelings, to the lies, to the cheats, to the abandonment. And there's plenty to go around in a book like Genesis. We have to see that even as God is at work carving out from his creation down to Adam, down to a thin family line, that there are pieces that get cut out We have to see that amidst God at work, there's still like this sense in which creation is just spiraling down into oblivion. It's almost like it starts off so good that it couldn't possibly get any better. And then it so quickly circles down the drain. Adam and Eve sin, introduce sin. It's like this infectious disease that we can't escape. Cain kills, murders his younger brother Abel. Even the, even the good guys in the story are nuanced. Abraham, a hero of the faith, he gives up on God's promises to him and, and, and he starts having kids with somebody whom he's not married to. And he has, he knows better than that. And yes, it wasn't okay, even though it happened a long time ago. But God hangs on to him and God keeps carving and he says, those kids are shards that fall to the ground. The story progresses, it just gets worse and worse. In the story of the Tower of Babel just before Abraham, which is fun in a way that we'll get to in just a minute, but, but the people, they all come together to, to, to build a tower to reach the heaven, to storm God's resting area. And, and it says that they came together to make a great name for themselves. And God scatters them, it's shards left behind. We see this recurring all throughout. Esau, Ishmael, one after another, after another, after another, just all these pieces that fall to the ground. And and in fact, this situation gets so helpless that at one point in the story, 
In Genesis, uh, the very end of chapter 11, just before our text for this morning, it, it gets so bad that God calls. This is the account of Terah, Abraham's father. He's called Abram here. It's the same name. It just gets changed uh, later on. But uh, God calls Abraham's uh, dad, Terah, and he says, listen, leave Ur. Go to this, go to this place I'm going to show you. Just keep on going until I tell you stop. We see this is the thin family line that God's been working on, that God has been carving out. This is the family line that God is, is, is picking and is paying all this attention to. And, and Terah, he's not exactly a hero of the faith or a saint. You know, his name, Terah, is a derivative of the Hebrew word yare for moon. And, and Ur, where he's living, is the global center of lunar of moon worship. If you don't like quite buy that, it just says later on in, in the book of Joshua, hey, you know what, Terah? Everybody knows he was an idol worshiper. Everybody knows he sort of had this nuanced faith. When God tells him to pack stuff up and to leave or and go to this place I'm going to show you, he says, okay, I'm going to do that. He packs up his things and he moves all the way to Haran, which is like the next town over. No, it's a little bit further than that. But, and then he settles down. I've come far enough. I'm done. And we start to see that God may be carving out Abraham, another sign of faith, except for Abraham is married. Her name is is Sarah. It gets changed to Sarah a little later on. But the problem is is Abraham comes from a family that that is sort of lacking in faith. His family comes from one that that has maybe one foot in. I believe you've got enough to move, but but not all the way in so as to, to move without conditions attached. I'll move to here not to wherever it is you're asking me to be. And one other thing besides Abraham's faith, uh, family that he comes from, not quite being there, is, is that Sarai, his, his wife, it, it says that she's barren. And today we would say that she struggles with infertility, except at her age then, she didn't struggle anymore. They just knew she couldn't have children. And so we start to see this thin family line that God has been working on and carving out, both spiritually and physically, coming to an end. Genesis chapter 11, immediately following this Tower of Babel story, it's like the candle, the spiritual candle of humanity is just flickering out. It's a hopeless situation. There's nothing more to be carved, it's just all scraps at the bottom. And then God speaks. Genesis chapter 12, 1 to 4. The Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I'll show you. Same message he gave to his dad, Terah. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abraham went, and as the Lord had as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abraham was seventy-five years old when he set out from Haran. Keep in mind, he started in Ur, he ended up in Haran, one foot in each world, one foot kind of hedging the bets in the idol worship world, one foot kind of in Haran. I'll listen, but not quite. Abraham moves. 
he leaves. And technically, the language here isn't just leave, but it's, it's go from your country. It's, it's get yourself out of here. I'm drawing you out. I'm separating you out. I'm carving you out from the rest of your family to be different. Now, we, I have to point out something in the call that's received here. There's two, I think, critical factors that, that, that we can't miss. The first one is just how powerful the call is. And this isn't just someone asking somebody else to do something. How powerful it is is because we see it's from God, repeated four times in just two short verses, verse two or three. I will make you in a great nation. I will make your name great. By the way, remember that Tower of Babel thing? They came together so that they could have a great name for himself. And now God says to Abram, I will make your name great, even though he didn't ask. It's cool. Anyway, I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you. I will curse we start to see this is action on God's part. The first thing that I want us to see about this call from God in the story of Genesis, this carving out, this separating story, is that when God carves you, when he goes to work on you, it is powerful. A quick story from the, there was a play, and I think it was made into a movie in the 60s, based on historical events, um, and King Henry II, I think the movie's name was uh, Beckett. It was about Thomas Beckett, who was a priest in the 1100s um, A.D., and King, uh, King Henry II and Thomas Beckett were good friends. Now, Thomas Beckett was a priest, and Henry was obviously king, but, and they weren't just good friends. They were, like, better than that. They, they were maybe, like, you could say drinking buddies. They were, um, they got themselves into all kinds of indiscretions. They were womanizers. They were, they were generally reprehensible human beings that we wouldn't want any of our children to hang out with all the time. And King Henry thought, well, this is fantastic. I mean, I have somebody here in the church who's, who's sort of like giving me the stamp of approval with whatever, the, whatever I want to do. Now, even after that, there's an opportunity that comes open in the, uh, in the, uh, to be the Archbishop of Canterbury. It's like the Bishop of England over all of England. And now King Henry, who's the King of England, says, this is perfect. I'm going to put my buddy, Thomas Beckett, as the Archbishop of Canterbury, and now I can do, like, whatever I want, wherever I want. And so he appoints Beckett to this post. Only God starts to move. Now, Beckett didn't want, didn't want to be changed. He didn't want to be used by God, but God came. And he started working on his heart. And the situation started to change. Beckett was no longer Henry's drinking buddy and fooling around buddy anymore. In fact, Beckett starts calling him out on certain things. Starts holding his feet to the fire. Starts saying, you can't do this. And there's a scene in the movie version where where King Henry is tossing and turning in his chambers at night. He's saying, who is going to relieve, alleviate this, this burden of Beckett from my life? It's not so rhetorical question because the guards outside understand and they go to Beckett's house and they murder him. It's a, it's a true actual historical event. In 1170 AD, King Henry had Thomas Beckett, the Archbishop of Canterbury, murdered and in the movie version, we see King Henry outside watching this happen, and he says, poor, poor Thomas. Because God called him. And what are you supposed to do when God calls you? But listen and obey. Here God calls Abram, and he says, this one foot in each world is not going to cut it. 
get out and go. Where, where am I going? Can you give me the street address, GPS, anything so that I can get myself? No, no, no. Go to this place. I'm going to show you. I'll tell you when you're there. Just get moving. Friends, if you've had this powerful call by God in your life, if you've experienced God working on you to call you out and to say, I have something for you, and if you start asking around to other people and say, you know, I'm not sure what this means, and I would just be very suspicious of anybody who tells you, listen, this is what you have to do. You have to start doing A, B, and C. I'd be very suspicious of people who tell you, well, now obviously there's X, Y, and Z that just have no place. Listen, because following after God isn't, isn't an agenda item. This is a tweet-worthy thing. I got it from Tim Keller. So, uh, following God isn't another item on the agenda. It is the agenda. It isn't just figuring out what A, B, and C or X, Y, and Z might be. It's everything. And when the powerful call of God comes in, we have no choice but to relent to whatever he's carving our hearts into to follow after him. And I don't think we can be a, a call ourselves Christians until we give him the entire agenda and say it's yours. Uh, that's a, the powerful call of God on the other side. There's this question of this stuff. If you've been tracking with this message so far and you're like, that is so cool that God calls people out, that he carves people out, that he separates people out for a unique and powerful purpose. But isn't it true that these are friends of ours? Isn't it true that we work with these people? Isn't it true that at more times in our life that we care to admit we feel like these people? That sometimes we might wonder, am I the one being carved? Or am I the one being discarded? What happens to the straps? What happens to the pieces? He tells us in the powerful call, which, by the way, I don't think is just on Abraham, but I think it's anybody who, who follows in his faith footsteps after Abraham. It tells us in verse 3, verse 2, it's there, but a bit passive. I will make your name great, and, and, and by the way, you will be a blessing. In verse 3, it says, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. The call of God on the Christian's life isn't just powerful and irresistible, friends. The call of God on people's life is missional. The call of God says, listen, there's all these scraps around and I've got a plan to clean it up. I've got a plan to, to do something with all of this, but, but you've got to understand something. I don't just do this on my own. I do this through you. If you can point to a time in your life, maybe it was nine years old and you said, you know what, I found Christ, or better yet, he found me in Sunday school when the teacher asked me if I call myself a Christian and I said yes. If, you, if you've done even that, you have this mission on your heart to, to reach all of these scraps. If, if, if you have 
maybe last week in Kalamazoo, found God for the first time, or better yet, God found you for the first time that you can remember and recall and and point to and say, I find myself in him. The mission that you have is to be a blessing to all these people, to pick up all these scraps, to, to be used by God to reach all nations on earth. And, and just so we don't miss something, because Abraham, after this, kind of went out, he gave up everything. And it was this, this wild call that, that, you know, even though he had a lot of uh, material resources to work from, he gave that up and then, and then he followed God. But, but at the end of his life, he still had a lot of material blessings because it, he sort of like accumulated a lot of this stuff. And it was like cows and sheep and all kinds of stuff that were like, I guess that means you're wealthy back then. And he, and he really, really was. But, but let's not make a mistake here and, and equate that to the blessing that he's talking about. Uh, Galatians, it's later on in the New Testament. Sometimes the New Testament helps us understand what's going on in the Old Testament. Uh, three, uh, eight, or Galatians 3, 7, 8, and 9. Understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. Uh, scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles, that's the non-Israelite or Jewish people, by faith and announced the gospel in advance to Abraham, listen, this is the gospel. All nations will be blessed through you. It seems like we've heard that before. So those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. The gospel. (laughs) He's been working for a little while. Let's give him a break. The gospel is this blessing that he's given us. The gospel is what goes forward to all the nations to pick up all the scraps. It's, this is the blessing that he has given to each one of us to bring to them. Listen, what happens to all the scraps? God is calling them in. He's cleaning them up. He's bringing them to himself. But he's using us. And this entire message of Genesis, of carving out, points to one thing. It's made even clearer in the New Testament, in the first book, Matthew, in the first chapter, one, in the first verse, one. This is the account, or this is the toledot. Some versions say this is the genealogy of Jesus, son of David, son of Abraham. All of Genesis points to God carving out a people for this purpose. Friends, it's our job to be obedient to Him and gather the nations. You can stay seated as we uh, pray together and also have communion. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you for the work uh, that you are doing, for carving us out, God. We ask for that powerful call to be made real again and again and again, to to refresh it in our minds, in our hearts, to, to bring us into this relationship with you so that, Lord, and this is so critical, so that we can bring others into the relationship as well. It's in your risen Son, Jesus Christ's name. Amen. At, uh, at this time, we are going to uh, celebrate...
communion. And, uh, and this is unusual uh, that we do this uh, as a community. If you're new to Encounter, you might be wondering um, kind of what's going on here. Am I welcome to participate? And, and we say communion is, communion is a unique act that Christians have been celebrating for thousands of years. It's since Jesus, in fact, set it up and said, go ahead and, and do this. Um, communion is an, is, is an experience of sitting at the table or standing at the table with God. That we believe that God is, is uniquely present here by his Holy Spirit. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are, are meeting us here in this act. Now, it's a, it's a nourishment. If you're on the journey of Christ, it doesn't matter what church background you come from or lack of, uh, of background, um, but we, we truly want you to celebrate this act of God, this saving grace, with us together. Now, now this morning, I'd like to kind of nuance it, just uh, make it a bit more unique as to how we usually do it and say, this act is a table where he feeds us because we're going to need energy for the journey. <laughs> Because we need something in us spiritually to go out and have the courage to gather up all the nations and to introduce them to the risen Savior, Jesus Christ. I invite you, um, while the music is playing, to worship with us and to come forward when you're ready. I invite you to use the, uh, the outside edges to, in a way, kind of queue up, to line up, to take communion, and to use the inside aisles to go back to your seats. Um, just as a, as a note, you're going to hear words accompanying um, this bread that's going to be ripped off for you and given to you, and you can receive it. And the words that are going to come along with it, you'll hear are the body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ shed for you. And we invite you to dip it in the, uh, in the juice, the grape juice, and eat it. The um, uh, table or the plates with the uh, wrapper, uh, cellophane wrapper on it are gluten-free if that's a concern for you. And uh, we have unique uh, cups for those as well. Jesus said, on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread and breaking it, he said, this is my body. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after the cup, after the meal, he took the cup and raising it, he said, this cup is the blood of my new covenant. Do this in remembrance of me. For when you eat this bread and you drink from this cup, you proclaim the death of Christ until he comes again. I invite you to stand as we enjoy the gifts of God for the people of God. <clears throat>